One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The reason Erdogan's rhetoric has changed is not because he's changed his mind with regards to Israel, but because the Turks have forced him. Riyadh season, Shakira and Tyson Fury and Dingano are so fundamental. And hopefully Nicki Minaj, if she accepts the invitation, mm. that will come. And Iggy Azalea, who already has an invitation to come to Riyadh, the only fan star. Mm. They're so important to transform. People think of being sarcastic, I'm not. The message that, has, that is going between the Iranians and the Americans is a simple one. We really don't want escalation. We don't want to go to war. We don't want to fight. Do you think this is a game-changing moment. I think that the Iranians have the same view as Erdogan and bin Salman and bin Zayed and, uh, and uh, Sisi and the King Abdullah. In Syria, the way they stood with Bashar al-Assad. Western leaders have had to defend the indefensible. Since I last spoke to Sami Hamdi, a lot has happened in the ongoing Gaza slaughter. Israel has finally moved its ground operations into Gaza and their Western backers have set down their intentions to provide diplomatic cover to their settler offshoot and shield it from criticism. Western leaders have had to defend the indefensible as Israel's punitive and indiscriminate actions continue. For example, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the EU Commission, just yesterday sent out a tweet at a Holocaust memorial saying never again. Yet the day before, she met with an Israeli official and gave her undying commitment to his cause. Such is their barefaced duplicity. Calls for a ceasefire have been vetoed at the UN, and the West accepts no liability for the thousands murdered in cold blood. It is truly astonishing to see how liberals on both sides of the Atlantic have confirmed what most of us have known for a very long time. Their so-called rules-based international order is set up to cover their brutality. It is not that they kill civilians without any recourse to humanity. It's that they openly declare their mass murder with knowledge of impunity. The West has given them diplomatic cover to engage in slaughter without red lines. This is truly an age of impunity. Sami Hamdi, our guest today, is the Director of International Interests and a regular commentator on mainstream news networks and, alhamdulillah, at Muslim venues across the UK and the world. 
That's right, Sami. Things have uh, moved at a very rapid pace for you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. You've been very busy, Sami. Wa alaikum Alhamdulillah. At the end of the day, I think that there are three things that are worth noting whenever people make this particular point, which is the first that Allah says in the Quran, Man kana he who seeks glory, let him know all glory belongs to Allah. Nobody participates in that or can take that away. The second thing that worth noting is always, in my opinion, that it's Islam that makes Muslim great, Muslims great, not the other way around. And that's why I think that when it comes to this cause on Palestine or the like, I understand the setting that some people are saying, yes, things have blown up very well or the like, but I think it's more anybody who has spoken about the cause, and I see even the views on the thinking Muslim and other people are talking about it. It's the cause that is really amplifying our voices and really elevating some of us, alhamdulillah. And I think as long as we focus on that and, and, and keep on the trajectory, we're still in the middle of this particular war of narratives that is our war and things are still unfolding. Alhamdulillah, ala kulli hal. Alhamdulillah for Allah who elevates those status. And inshallah, we are, um, we say in Arabic, giddil mas'uliya. Inshallah, we are, we, we are worthy of the responsibility. Perfect. Now, today I want to take, uh, get your take on the past week's uh, critical events and the diplomatic maneuvers that have taken place. I want to get an update on your political analysis. Uh, we're speaking on the evening of Friday, the 10th of November. But I want to begin with discussing the Muslim governments and where they are. The last time we spoke, you talked a little bit about the leverage the Muslim governments have. Uh, there is a social media call to uh, deploy the armies in support of Muslims in Palestine. Is this realistic? Uh, when the US and all the Western allies are really given diplomatic and military cover to uh, Israel. Uh, and short of this military action, what else can the Muslim governments really do? I think that first and foremost, it's important to remember that World War I and World War II began via what were called military mistakes. Mm -hmm. There was World War I was the assassination of, of in, in Sarajevo, Franz Ferdinand. In World War II was uh, Hitler who believed that if he invaded Poland, then the other countries wouldn't get involved. In other words, world wars were not started because people intended for that world war to start. And I think one of the reasons why there is a lack of entertainment with, of the military solution is more a concern that the moment a power moves militarily, aside from the Palestinians and the Israelis, then another World War III might break out. And I think there is a consensus, even in Washington, that nobody wants that to happen, which is why I think the Americans have been very keen to affirm that they are trying to make sure that this conflict does not expand beyond the Palestinians and the Israelis. And I don't think that's necessarily Machiavellian. I think that's a genuine out of concern that we are touching on the precipice of a disaster that might particularly unfold. Mm. I think that when it comes to the possible options aside from military, I think the reason that a lot of the Muslim governments are being lambasted is because there are other means that the Muslim states can leverage, that can force a ceasefire, mm. that can force the Americans tomorrow to say we can no longer back Israel. And I give some examples. Please. When the Saudi crown prince, when the Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia criticized bin Salman's human rights record, Adil Jubeir, who was the foreign minister at the time, said, we are not a banana republic. And the Saudi crown prince immediately kicked out the Canadian ambassador and canceled arms contracts with the Canadians. Mm. The Canadians panicked. They held out for a few months and eventually said to the Saudis, we're very sorry, please can we restore relations? And they restored it. When Biden called the Saudi crown prince a pariah, the Saudi crown prince utilized the increase in the gas prices to encourage it to go even higher. And we all saw the scene of Biden getting on the plane, going to Jeddah and pleading with bin Salman, pleading yeah. for a reset in ties to tell bin Salman, please help me with this gas prices. And bin Salman was able to secure concessions 
from Biden. And when Biden tried to go back and change his mind, Vincent Mann cut production just before the midterm elections to punish Biden and let him know. Mm. The point here being is that when Vincent Mann wants to pressure the Americans, he does. When Vincent Mann was upset that Biden was still treating him with a cold shoulder despite declaring a reset of ties, Saudi Crown Prince Vincent Mann, as we discussed, called the Chinese Premier Xi Jinping to Riyadh, mm. rolled out the red carpet, and then pursued the invitation of BRICS to try to join BRICS to say that I'm shifting to the east. I'm moving towards China. How did the Americans react? They pleaded with the Saudis. They went to the side and said, what is it that you want? Tell us, Mohammed bin Salman, what are your conditions? The point here being, we're seeing that Saudi has the leverage and it has used that leverage in the past to secure its own individual interest and bin Salman's personal interest, which shows that Saudi is, it's not that it doesn't have the leverage to do so for the Palestinians, but rather that it believes that it doesn't want to use that leverage in favor of the Palestinians. Yeah. When Rajab Tayyib Erdogan was upset with the US support for the Kurdish separatists in northern Syria, Erdogan kept threatening to unilaterally intervene with a military offensive. When people believed that he wouldn't do it, he began to move his troops, he moved them onto the border, he began skirmishes, and as a result, the Americans went and sent their CIA chief, the vice president, and their national security advisor to Ankara to say to Erdogan, yeah, Erdogan, please, 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 what is it that you want in exchange for you not to embark on this unilateral measure? When the Americans continued to pressure Erdogan, Erdogan went to the Russians, he bought S-400s, he allied with the Russians, he established good ties with them. The Americans went in rushing and said to Erdogan, what concessions can we make to you in order to, what policy can we change in order to make you happier? Mm. Erdogan has political and diplomatic leverage that he can deploy. The problem is that he believes that he, he, it's not the time to deploy that political and diplomatic leverage because he's concerned about, because he wants relations with Israelis, which we'll discuss later on. The point here being is that the, the, the power is there aside from using the military armies. Mm. The reality is this from a political perspective, and it may upset some people. Mm. Gaza is not in need of military armies today because it's the military armies is not the only means to get the Israelis to back off. Mm. If you pressure the Americans with this diplomatic leverage, as is being reported now today, it was reported that all of the cables coming into Washington are that the Arab allies are furious because they are being under pressure from public, pub, public opinion and that the Americans are now concerned over the ramifications that this is going to have on the future of the relations with the Arab states, it means that the Americans have identified a scenario that is disastrous for American foreign policy without even the need to deploy the armies. One of the reasons there is a humanitarian pause right now, and again, we'll talk about it later on, is because it's the Americans going to the Israelis and saying, look, we're feeling the pressure here. We're feeling the pressure from public opinion that is forcing even the allies that we rely on, even our friends in the region, even our allies in the region who want to normalize ties with you, public opinion is forcing them to say, look, we like the US and Israel, but we're not going to put those interests above the interest of public opinion. Mm. We're forced to alter that public opinion. When we saw, for example, King Abdullah of Jordan withdraw the ambassador from Israel, when we saw Turkey reluctantly withdraw the ambassador from Israel because the Israelis had already withdrawn and Erdogan was concerned about that the Turks would ask, why haven't we withdrawn ours? Mm. When you see those withdrawal of the ambassadors, and when you see that Blinken does two or three visits to the region to talk to allies, to try to present his vision for how they can handle Gaza or the like, it shows that Blinken identifies that there's a power beyond military might that these allies have that they can leverage against the Americans to make the Americans put pressure on the Israelis in order to push for a ceasefire. And this is where the tragedy comes with regards to the Muslim nations, in that it appears that Muslim nations have the diplomatic leverage, they have the economic leverage to force a ceasefire, but they believe that their immediate uh, national interests, when they weigh it, is Vision 2030 worth compromising for the Gazans? Bin Salman says no. 
is the Middle East corridor and the gas pipeline in the Mediterranean worth compromising for the sake of Gaza? Erdogan is still mulling whether it's true or not. Yeah. King Abdullah of Jordan has already made his decision. I'm on the verge of a potential regime change. If I don't do anything, I need to adapt accordingly. And he's essentially said that any displacement of Gazans constitutes a declaration of war, a very strong statement. But to go back to your question and answer it very briefly, Muslim powers have the ability to put leverage on the Americans to force a ceasefire, but they're not willing to deploy that leverage on their own. They're not willing to be the sole country that deploys that leverage on their own because they fear the repercussions that might come later on, which might even be supported by other Muslim nations. Hamid bin Jassim, the Qatari prime minister, posted a cryptic tweet a few days before the recording of this interview, mm. saying that there is a brotherly nation that is now lobbying and using Qatar's ties with the Palestinian factions as a means to deride Qatar in Washington. That there are states, the implication here is the UAE, that is going to the Americans and saying, yo, see, look how Qatar is talking to Hamas and the Palestinians. We told you they support terrorism. This is, in other words, the idea being is that if Erdogan goes out on his own, he can expect the UAE and other countries to work with the US against him. Mm. It's the idea that the Muslims or the nations are looking forward, but also looking at each other and believing that all the knives are out ready to be stuck in each other's backs. Mm. So there is leverage to be used, but they haven't decided yet, or some of them haven't decided yet, if that leverage is worth using for the sake of the Gazans or the Palestinians. Sami, how do we distinguish between uh, these diplomatic and political actions that may have an impact uh, over, say, just symbolic gestures? I mean, Erdogan gives a speech where he says that Hamas is not a terrorist organization. It's a, a, a you know, a, a speech that everyone uh, talks about and, and Turkish people are pretty happy. He gets his AK Party members to boycott uh, Starbucks. In fact, a lot of them uh, stage uh, boycotts within Starbucks uh, in Turkey. Um, a lot of that sounds pretty hollow and pretty symbolic. How do we distinguish between what are real, concrete political and diplomatic actions and just symbolic gestures to pacify public opinion? I think to talk about this in general terms is very difficult. If you take it country by country, however, it becomes much easier to do so. You've mentioned Erdogan, so we'll start with Erdogan. I think that when it comes to Erdogan, we mentioned it in the previous podcast as well that he was looking for warmer ties with the Israelis. He wants a gas pipeline in the Mediterranean. He wants an alternative Middle East corridor. Yeah. He met with Netanyahu in the UN. He was talking about warmer ties with Israel. And even in the beginning, when after October 7th, he gave an unprecedented statement, unprecedentedly weak statement, where he didn't necessarily throw his weight behind the Gazans or the Palestinians, but rather tried to present himself as a mediator and wanted this to de-escalate quite quickly and presented himself as a friend of the Israelis. Mm. The reason Erdogan's rhetoric has changed is not because he's changed his mind with regards to Israel, but because the Turks have forced him to change the rhetoric. Erdogan is looking at his Turkish population, which is seething with rage over what is happening in Gaza. There was a viral video in Turkey of a man, an older man, who was shouting at the camera and saying, Erdogan, when you called us out in 2016 to rescue you from the attempted coup, we all took to the streets. Call us now for Gaza. Let us now mobilize to the streets. The implication here is that Erdogan is not leading the efforts in the way that the Turks expected him to. Not only that, we also saw protests in Ankara, the secular capital of Turkey, coming out in force for Gaza. The Turks, in their seething anger, and Turks, of course, believe that Turkey has become strong. Mm. They believe that Turkey is a power. Tur Turks refuse to accept the idea that they are weak in any way whatsoever. So the suggestion that Erdogan can't do anything against Israel is something that offends the very basic sensibilities of even the secular Turk, the idea that the Turk 
is incapable of doing it. Mm. And as a result, Erdogan, we saw him go from, I want to be friends with Israel to I want to be a neutral mediator. And when he saw the buildup of anger in Turkey, his policy and his statements have been geared towards appeasing the Turkish population, not about offending the Israelis. Mm. It's been about trying to find the means to allow the Turks to channel that anger in a way that will not burn him. And that's one of the reasons he held that million man rally where he allowed the Turks to come to let off some steam, to shout and gave them a speech about how Israel is a terrorist state or the like and how Israel is violating. He set his media channels to go and attack the Israelis, TRT World and these others providing all this attack on Israel, which has offended the Israelis, mm. but not offended the Israelis to the extent that they believe that Erdogan doesn't want ties. And here is why Erdogan believes he can escape from offending the Israelis. It is because there is a political article that came out, Politico, not political, Politico article that came out last week in which it suggested or it said that when Biden went to Tel Aviv, Biden told Netanyahu that I will support you in your offensive and I will support you in what you want to do with Gaza. But he told the other Israeli parties, I'm sick and tired of Netanyahu. Once we finish with Gaza, Netanyahu goes. Once we're done with this episode of punishing the Palestinians, Netanyahu has to go. I can't work with Netanyahu. If you notice Erdogan's speech, Erdogan said that we can no longer work with Netanyahu. We can no longer talk with Netanyahu. Yeah. We will no longer cooperate with Netanyahu because Erdogan's conclusion is that given that Biden now agrees that Netanyahu has to go, I don't have to go all gung-ho. I can keep my position as it is. I will appease my Turkish population by talking against the Israelis. And when Biden changes the prime minister of Israel into somebody like Benny Gantz, who's in favor of regional normalization, mm. Benny Gantz, from Erdogan's perspective, is somebody who will let bygones be bygones and will pursue warmer ties with Turkey and facilitate normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia. And even if people lambast Erdogan later for his stance, when Saudi Arabia normalizes, it will be such a body blow for the Muslim conscience that they will ignore the fact that Erdogan has restored those ties. But the point that I'm saying is, it's not that Erdogan is callous or that he's being Machiavellian. I truly believe that Erdogan does have convictions that are firmly aligned with the Palestinians. Mm. But I think Erdogan's calculation is realistically, what can I do? I'm not making excuses or justifying. Mm. I'm saying that imagine you are the leader of Turkey at this moment in time. You're struggling in Syria, you're struggling in Azerbaijan, ties with Europe at an all-time low. The US, Biden openly said that we need to support the opposition to get rid of you. The opposition have finally got rid of Kilich Darulu, they brought somebody else now as the leader of the party, somebody who you never know might stand a chance to, 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 to topple you. We have the appellate court and the constitutional court now fighting between themselves, which has sweeping consequences and ramifications over your influence over the judiciary. Erdogan believes that in light of this economic crisis, he believes that there is nothing really materially he can do for the Gazans aside from applying this diplomatic pressure or the like. Having said that, one of the things that has been that Erdogan has made clear is one, Erdogan did not kick out the Israeli ambassador. Yeah, the Israeli ambassador yeah. left on their own. Yeah. Erdogan recalled the Turkish ambassador because it looked humiliating that the Israelis had withdrawn ambassador because of Turkish public anger, but Turkey had left its ambassador there. Mm -hmm. The point I'm making is Erdogan is playing keep up or catch up with the Turkish public opinion. The harder Turkish public opinion is, because remember, Turkey is a country that is more free than the other Muslim countries. Mm. The Turkish people have the power to oust their leader in a way the Arab populations don't. Erdogan knows he will have to face an election and he knows that those who carry him to power are the Muslim Islamic movements that will never forgive him 
if he does not stand with Palestine. They might forgive him for other things. They might forgive him on issues related to Syria or that, but they will never forgive him for Palestine. And that's why Erdogan believes that he's trying to navigate this very thin line on a tightrope. Mm -hmm. How to appease the Turkish population while not offending the Israelis. And I think he's found comfort in that given there is a consensus Netanyahu should go, I can talk about Netanyahu, but not the Israelis, and then I can restore those ties with the Israelis. The point that I want to make here is, going back to your question, is that Erdogan is clearly buckling under public opinion. That public opinion is happening because of the ordinary Muslim. It's because the ordinary Muslims are sharing on social media because they're taking to the streets, they're taking on the protest. They are forcing Erdogan into a change. Now, because Erdogan has forced into a change, this is why Blinken went to Turkey. Blinken is concerned that Erdogan is hesitating. You are asking what impact does it have, what tangible impact. Blinken is concerned that public opinion is forcing an ally in Turkey who wants to have good ties with Israel to reconsider those ties, to go on a tightrope. In other words, Blinken is going because he believes that that public opinion has started a chain reaction that has the potential to create a scenario in which Erdogan goes all the way. Blinken went to Ankara because he's concerned that Erdogan is being squeezed into a corner where he will have to decide between Turkish public opinion and standing with Gaza and between ties with Israel and warmer rapprochement with the Americans. And Blinken is concerned, this is the point I want to make, that Erdogan is closer to aligning with public opinion in Gaza than he is about resisting public opinion and standing with the Israelis. So you ask what is the tangible impact of the public opinion, the diplomatic measures and the statements, the statements are causing concern in Washington because Washington believes, unlike the ordinary person listening to this video, Washington believes that Erdogan has shown before that when he's forced into a corner, he acts. They're worried that Erdogan will act. The same applies to Jordan. We're moving from country to country. The same applies to Jordan. King Abdullah has been a vital vehicle through which to uphold Israel's security, not because he wants to, but because he lacks the power to do anything else. Jordan is heavily reliant on Gulf money to keep the economy going. And when King Abdullah of Jordan has tried to act independently in the past, we saw Saudi Arabia and the UAE try to orchestrate a coup last year through one of his half-brothers, and the half-brother was eventually detained and the like, and it was a big scandal. And then eventually there was a reconciliation. The Jordanians arrested Saudi's man in Jordan as well, clearly indicating they believe the Saudis were trying to topple him. King Abdullah in Jordan has been under heavy pressure from the Saudi crown prince to hand over custodianship of the Al-Aqsa Mosque to Muhammad bin Salman, so that bin Salman becomes in charge of the three Haramain. And according to diplomats that I've spoken to in closed rooms, the Israelis are convinced. I'm not saying the Saudis said it. I'm not saying that Saudi has promised this. The Israelis are convinced that Saudi normalization will result in bin Salman handing over the territories of Al-Aqsa to the Israelis as part of improving those ties. Whether that's true or not, Israel, the Israelis are convinced about that. Jordan has been under heavy pressure. The Jordanians have been trying to maintain the status quo, keep the peace with Israel and keep the peace with the Americans. So imagine you're an American sitting in the White House and advisor to Blinken and King Abdullah of Jordan, who you know is willing to play the role of helping to protect Israel's security because he doesn't have power to do anything else, is suddenly talking about declaration of war, is suddenly withdrawing his ambassador. Mm. There are protests now taking place in Jordan and he decides to go to the convention in, in the, the meeting in Cairo and he gives a speech in English where he lambasts the Americans, where he says that you guys consider your lives more expensive than ours, that you're making our lives as cheap and you will pay the price for generations to come. Mm. Blinken's reaction is to go to the region to meet with King Abdullah of Jordan. The reason Blinken gets on a plane to go to King Abdullah of Jordan 
is not because he's at ease with King Abdullah of Jordan. If he was, he would have stayed in the White House. He goes to King Abdullah of Jordan because he's concerned that King Abdullah is under heavy pressure from public opinion, from the ordinary Muslim watching this video who is tweeting and retweeting and sharing and protesting and the like. Blinken is worried that that public opinion is becoming so heavy that King Abdullah of Jordan, when he's forced to decide, should I protect U.S. interests or go on public opinion? Blinken is concerned that he will side with public opinion. Even if he doesn't, it's irrelevant. Politics is all about perceptions and the, and the, and the, and the science of possibilities. Mm. Blinken is concerned that King Abdullah, there's a scenario that exists where King Abdullah of Jordan will side with public opinion, and that necessitates a visit to go to Amman to talk to King Abdullah of Jordan, and King Abdullah of Jordan canceled the court meeting between the Palestinians, the Egyptians, and the Americans. He said, I'm not having any of it. Something that upset the Americans. And that's an example of where the tangible process lies because one of the reasons that Blinken went from a ceasefire, from no ceasefire to humanitarian pause is because he's concerned that public opinion is forcing the regional policymakers to alter their stance. Take Sisi, for example, and forgive me for going on about this, but we'll take it country by country. Please. Sisi, for example. Sisi has banned protests in Egypt since he took power in 2013. Yeah. Sisi is concerned that the Israeli plan is to push the Palestinians out of Gaza into the Sinai Peninsula. Sisi knows, as a matter of fact, that if this happens, he will go down in history as the greatest traitor to the Ummah that ever lived, as somebody who helped to facilitate that Nakba. Sisi is under heavy pressure. The Americans came to him and said to him, we will give you debt relief if you take them in. On the 20th of October, Biden proposed a funding bill to Congress. Part of that funding bill says that we want to designate millions of funds for neighboring countries to help them with displaced Palestinians. It was Biden saying, I want Congress to provide funds for ethnic cleansing. Financial Times reported that the Egyptian foreign minister responded privately to a meeting of diplomats that wallahi, if these Palestinians are sent into Sinai Peninsula, we will put all of them on boats and send them to the Europeans and you guys can deal with your human rights or the like. Yeah. On the 28th of October, so before 28th, Blinken goes to visit Sisi in Cairo. Sisi is under so much pressure that he decides to leave the cameras on. He seats Blinken on the side and he proceeds to give a 40-minute lecture to Blinken to tell him when you came to Tel Aviv, you said you came as a Jew. When have we ever persecuted the Jews in this region? And he proceeds to surprise the Americans and lambast Blinken, indicating the extent to which Sisi is livid with the Americans, not because he's upset about the Palestinians, but upset that they're threatening to throw him under the bus by forcing him to take in those refugees. As a result of the, the stance of the Egyptians of Sisi, on the 28th of October, Biden tweets and says, I spoke in a phone call with Sisi, and we have agreed that no Palestinian should be displaced outside of Gaza. Mm. I thought that Biden might be lying because Biden has said that he saw the pictures of the 40 beheaded babies and the White House said that he never saw it. It was Netanyahu who told him. Mm. Then John Kirby came out the next day and said, yes, there will be no displacement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. Mm. You asked about the tangible shifts. The reason that they shifted from displacing the Gazans outside of Gaza, even though some people say they're being displaced, from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. But the point is this, that shift in US policy is as, the, as a result of the shifting policy of the regional allies as a result of the public opinion and public anger that is being expressed on the streets. Mm. And that's why when Blinken went to Tel Aviv, according to Axios and CNN, Blinken said to Netanyahu, we need a humanitarian pause. Netanyahu said to Blinken, I think this is a nasty ploy from Biden 
to force me into a ceasefire. Blinken replied and says, according to Axios, help us to help you. We are suffering under that public opinion. If it continues this way, our position will, to, of, of preventing a ceasefire will become untenable. We need this humanitarian pause to help you with the ethnic cleansing. Mm. We need the humanitarian pause so we can market our support for you as humanitarian. Mm. The question is this, and I'll finish on this because we might go into some other stuff yes. in detail. The point here is this. The shift in the stance of the regional allies and the statements forced a shift in the stance of the US and the statements of the US. We're not in the clear yet in terms of calling for a ceasefire, sure. but the shift is undeniable. And that shift shows that there are tangible changes taking place as a result of the shifting stance of the regional allies. And those shifting stances are as a result of public opinion, which makes you wonder that if the leaders took it upon themselves to act instead of waiting for public opinion, what the possibilities could be. Now, that's a very thorough answer, Sami. Uh, there is a view that the Muslim governments are weak. Uh, they don't have the ability to move at this moment in time. And if they do, uh, they'll become another pariah state, a North Korea or a Saddam Hussein Iraq. Uh, the argument suggests that some of these leaders, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Turkey or Jordan, are biding their time. Um, does that idea that they're developing themselves to resist the greater threats that come from the United States and her allies, and they're trying to create a, a system where they can create more strategic autonomy for themselves, does that argument uh, convince you in any way? Absolutely not. I don't mm -hmm. think that's the issue of what's happening here at all. I think the reality is that the Muslim nations are badly divided and conspiring against each other, and that mm -hmm. results in the inability to form a united front that might actually force the Americans to back down. Right. In 1973, when the Israelis were pushing back against the Egyptians and the Syrians, they were actually marching towards Damascus and marching towards Cairo. The reason that they backed off was because King Faisal turned off the oil, threatened to increase it by 5% every single day, or cut it by 5% every single day, increased the oil price, the Americans panicked, they rushed quickly to the Israelis, and the Israelis, stop, 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 we can no longer support you on this. And they even forced the Israelis to give concessions to the Egyptians and the Syrians and to withdraw from the lands that they had actually taken from the Syrians and from the Egyptians themselves. The point here being is that when they come together, they're capable of forcing the Americans to back down. Mm. I think as it stands at the moment, and even when you look at the stance of Saudi and the UAE in particular, you can see that there is not a unified stance whatsoever. You can see that, and I know that it's a brazen thing to say, and it will cause shock for people. I actually argue that Saudi in particular is more in the Israeli camp than it is in the Palestinian camp by every measure possible. Yeah. The reason why I say this is that when you're talking about are these countries trying to pursue autonomy or the like? I think it's less about pursuing autonomy and more about just trying to survive. Mm. King Abdullah of Jordan is just trying to survive. Short-term thinking. Short-term thinking. Sisi is just trying to survive. The reason that Sisi hesitated to allow protest was because he was concerned that if he allows protest in Egypt, which is supposed to show support for the Palestinians, if he lets the Egyptians onto the streets and lifts that chokehold that he has on the Egyptian people, then they'll turn on him and go to Medina Tahrir and they'll go protest against him instead. Some of them did, they were beaten up by the police and driven back, but it scared Sisi. Sisi is aware he doesn't have public support, he doesn't have regional support, and now there is even an idea being touted that is allegedly coming from the UAE that an Arab force could be put inside Gaza to help the Israelis to chain the Palestinians. In other words, an offer that's being made, which is why it was interesting that the Jordanian foreign minister came out and said, we reject an international force in Gaza, whether it's Arab or not Arab. Why did he include Arab in that statement? It suggests that an Arab force has been suggested. And the Egyptians then repeated it. We reject the idea of an Arab force in Gaza. And William Burns is reported, the head of CIA, 
is reported that on his trip to Cairo a couple of days ago, he suggested the idea of an Arab force in Israel, yeah. in, in Palestine, yeah. to say to the, to, to the Arab allies, look, we all know you all want good relations with the Israelis. How about you send some forces over there to help us to contain the Palestinians? And the Arab forces are rejecting the idea mm. on the basis that they would look like traitors. Mm. I think that when it comes to the pursuit of strategic autonomy, I think that applies only in the case of Saudi Arabia. And explain what I mean. Mm. The Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has three main priorities at this moment in time. A NATO-style security agreement to push back against Iran and its proxies, a support for Vision 2030, and also the, acqui the acquiring of nuclear technology to build a nuclear program. Mm. Those three priorities are so important and so fundamental, especially Vision 2030. It's so important that on the night that the Israelis cut off internet connection to Gaza and proceeded to pound it harder than it had pounded at any point in the previous weeks, the Saudi crown prince hosted Shakira and Tyson Fury and Dengano and went ahead with the festival, even though the UAE and Oman and Kuwait, the UAE cancelled the festivals. Mm. Oman and Kuwait had already cancelled them. And Turki al-Sheikh, the descendant of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, Turki al-Sheikh, who is the head of the General Entertainment Authority, put on Facebook the night before saying, how dare anybody tell me to cancel Real season and cancel Shakira? Name me one football match that was cancelled because of a political event. And he didn't even have the class to put at the end of it, may Allah have mercy on those happening on Gaza. The reason being is that Bin Salman believes that the Riyadh season is absolutely fundamental to transforming the image of the kingdom. It's absolutely fundamental to showing the world that Saudi Arabia is moving forward, that Saudi Arabia is progressing, that Saudi Arabia is the new power. The Riyadh season, Shakira and Tyson Fury and Dingano are so fundamental and hopefully Nicki Minaj, if she accepts the invitation, mm. that will come. And Iggy Azalea, who already has an invitation to come to Riyadh, the only fan star. Mm. They're so important to transform. People think being sarcastic, I'm not. Bin Salman believes these people are absolutely important in transforming the image of Saudi Arabia. He believes that this is so important that the Gazans or the Palestinians are not worth compromising on this. He believes that hosting Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, who came up with the idea of the deal of the century in which some a few millions would be given to the Palestinians in exchange for giving more land to the Israelis. Jared Kushner was the keynote speaker last week at Saudi's Davos in the Desert Forum, at the Economic Forum. At his keynote speech, he lambasted the Palestinians, talk about the necessity of normalization of ties and talk about the enthusiasm of the Abraham Accords and how it could achieve peace. A nation that is angry about what's happening in Palestine would never have received Jared Kushner or allowed him to speak in that way in the middle of the kingdom. Not only that, when Jared Kushner went back to the US and he spoke to, I think it was The Hill, or CNN, I think The Hill he spoke to, mm. he said, when I went to Saudi Arabia, I found that the Jew is safer in Saudi Arabia than he is on college campuses in the US. Mm. And he said that I found an enthusiasm for, for normalization of ties and that it's very much still on, on the table. Bin Salman believes that Israel is absolutely important as an ally to secure a NATO-style agreement against the Houthis in Yemen, against the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq, against the pro-Iran militias, and against Iran itself. Bin Salman believes that the security of the kingdom cannot be compromised for the sake of the Palestinians. 10,000 Palestinians dying, including children, 10,000 Muslims dying, 10,000 Palestinians dying is not worth canceling vision or compromising vision 2030. It doesn't matter how many Palestinians die. Bin Salman believes that there is a necessity to normalize ties with Israel, to get the Americans to help to protect him against the Iranians and to help to advance vision 2030. 
to help build cities that look like Miami, to help advance the concerts in order to promote this new Saudi identity, in order to promote this new idea of what Saudi Arabia is meant to mean. So when we look at strategic autonomy, Bin Salman is planning for strategic autonomy. Bin Salman believes the strategic autonomy is so important that it should come at the expense of the Palestinians. Bin Salman, this is the reason why at the, at the ASEAN Riyadh summit, ASEAN being the countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, and these countries, two weeks ago, Bin Salman gave a speech of five minutes. In it, he dedicated 32.25 seconds to Gaza. I know because I cut it on Premier Pro. <laughs> In those 32.25 seconds, he called the, the, what's happening. He didn't call it a genocide or ethnic cleansing. He called it an unfortunate violence. He didn't mention Israel by name. He didn't denounce the Israelis. He called for restraint on all sides and called for an urgent de-escalation to take place. Not only that, Saudi Arabia's strategic autonomy is so important. The pursuit of strategic autonomy is so important. Vision 2030 is so important that Bin Salman has been trying to redefine the parameters of debate on Palestine within Saudi Arabia itself. The mashayikh in nearly every mosque in Saudi Arabia has been giving the same lesson almost every single day. You must obey the ruler. You must obey Bin Salman. You must obey the ruler who knows better than you. Do not talk about issues that you don't know. Abdurrahman al-Sudais, the head of the Haramain, the chief imam, yesterday told the crowd, he started with Allahumma rescue Palestine. Allahumma bless the people of Gaza and protect them. Mm. Once he finished, once he did the, the, the wajib in order to try to get the Muslims to listen to him, he said, and remember, don't let people use this fitna. He called it a fitna. Don't let people use this fitna to cause you to turn on your leader, to cause you to turn on bin Salman and obey your rulers and obey the scholars that he has appointed over you. The reason they are delivering this message is because they are concerned that Saudis are angry and the Muslim world is angry, that they are angry that bin Salman is not doing anything and therefore they are Islamically trying to chain the ummah by saying that you must obey the ruler because the ruler knows better than you. In the words of one sheikh in Jama' al-Rajhi in Riyadh, the, the mosque that belongs to the billionaire Suleiman al-Rajhi, although he doesn't run it, the, there's, a, there's a sheikh who said, quote, you are like slugs compared to the ruler. You have no knowledge of these affairs and your analyses are burdensome on our rulers. We should trust them and let them know what they're doing. When they host Shakira, for Riyadh season, we must trust that our ruler knows what they're doing. When they host uh, uh, Tyson Fury and Dingano, while Gaza is being bombarded, we must trust that our ruler knows what he's doing because he's pursuing strategic autonomy that we might later be able to use in favor of the Palestinians. The point here being is the only country that your argument applies to strategic autonomy is Bin Salman. Bin Salman is pursuing strategic autonomy, one that is so important that it should not be compromised for the sake of the Palestinians. It can only be compromised if Bin Salman is personally insulted. If the Canadians say, criticize the human rights record, Bin Salman will compromise strategic autonomy mm. by kicking other Canadians and upsetting the West. Yeah. If Biden calls him a pariah, if Biden insults Bin Salman personally, Bin Salman will cut the oil production, he'll increase the prices, he'll mess around with the gas prices because bin Biden has insulted him specifically and he's ready to compromise Saudi strategic autonomy mm. for the sake of the personal insult or rectifying that personal insult. But the point is to finish here on this, yeah. with regards to strategic autonomy or the like, it's absolutely abundantly clear 
that the Muslim countries have the ability to do something, but they are choosing not to because they believe that their strategic autonomy, that they are still building it, and they believe that that strategic autonomy can be built on the abandonment of the Palestinians. There are different degrees to it. I don't think Erdogan is as callous as bin Salman in it. I believe that Erdogan, for all of my issues with regards to his policies, is sitting in the palace and, and holding his head, scratching his head, thinking, my goodness, what am I going to do? I'm really struggling with this. I think King Abdullah is pulling his hairs out. I think Sisi is pulling his hairs out. But I think that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are sitting there and saying, Israel, we can make this easy for you. What do you need from us? And we're seeing the scholars being deployed in this, in this effort. So in the absence of uh, clear public pressure in Saudi Arabia, we don't have that type of pressure on the streets of Saudi Arabia. There's no demonstrations, no ability for the Saudi public to demonstrate or protest uh, their disagreement with the policies of the crown prince. In the absence of that, I mean, there was a speculation at the very beginning of this crisis that normalization is dead for a generation. Uh, but uh, we're getting signs that it's still on the table. In fact, there was a high level uh, government minister in Saudi Arabia who suggested that normalization is still present. I mean, do you think that the Saudis could utilize this crisis to pursue uh, that process of normalization? I don't think the Saudis will utilize it in this regard. I've seen the suggestion that normalization would be used in exchange for a ceasefire with the Palestinians. I don't think bin Salman is even thinking about that at all. I think bin Salman, regardless of what happens in Gaza, normalization is still on the table because it's absolutely integral to the three aims that we were talking about, yeah. NATO-style agreement, Vision 2030, and the uh, proliferation of nuclear technology. I think that for the Saudi crown prince, Gaza is an inconvenience that should only be talked about because there is concern about public pressure. You made the point that in Saudi, there's no real manifestation of public pressure or the like. I think that the fact that the main lessons being preached in mosques, including in Medil and Munawara on the day that we are, so a friend sent me a, a, a recording. He's sitting in the haram in Medina and he's, he recorded the khutbah and he sent it. He doesn't understand the Arabic. He said, what's the Imam saying? And the Imam is saying, and I have the recording here. I won't show it for, for the purpose. Yeah. The Imam is saying that, yeah, ibadallah, our hearts are bleeding for Gaza, but beware those who are utilizing this to turn you against your rulers. This is in Al-Madin Al-Munawwara, in the Prophet's mosque, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They are preaching this message. When a government believes that every imam in the country has to be deployed in order to Islamically argue that you should not talk about Gaza because it risks turning you against your ruler, that means a meeting took place in the royal palace in Riyadh that said that Saudis might, there is a scenario where the Saudis might punish us. There is the potential for a public backlash that might cause problems for us. There is a scenario where Saudis get angry. Let's deploy the means at our disposal, the concepts and the imma, in order to try to get them to be quiet. I think the proliferation or, or the idea of the imams talking about this issue, including Abdurrahman al-Sudais, the imam in, in Mecca, I think the fact that they're talking about it so openly suggests there is concern in Riyadh about public opinion. Moreover, if you note in the Saudi statements, they've gone back to using the word ihtilal to describe the Israelis. That's to appease public opinion. That's not about offending the Israelis. When the Saudi crown prince starts to talk about the 1967 borders again, mm. when, if you remember the Fox News, he said he's willing to accept anything that makes the lives of the Palestinians easier. Mm. And Reuters was reporting that the Saudis were not interested in a Palestinian state. They would settle for less. When he talks about the 1967 borders, it's not that he's changed his position, but that he feels that he needs to say that. He needs to say that he's upping the price 
to get Jalal and Sami Hamdi and everybody else in this room and, and the people watching to say, the Saudis are now firmer in their stance with regards to a Palestinian state. Mm. You do that when you're concerned about the potential that public opinion might be able to achieve. Mm. And that's the point that is underlying all of the political changes. Blinken's change in his policy and bin Salman talking about these issues is not because suddenly they believe that there should be a pause or that there should be the 1967 borders. Mm. It's because they're concerned about a dynamic that they fear will go out of control. And that's public opinion. That's the ordinary people. And that's why a lot of the question should be how to amplify that public opinion or the like. Mm. But to go back to your question about strategic autonomy, just to put it in one line, yes. with regards to strategic autonomy, it's very blunt. Bin Salman is pursuing strategic autonomy and Gaza and Palestine is not worth compromising that at all. Can I ask you about Iran's position? Um, now, last week, we, we're talking on a Friday. Last Friday, there was a speech given by uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, known or, you know, obviously a proxy of Iran. Uh, it was a one and a half hour meandering speech, probably, setting out what seemed like his non-position. Now, there's two interpretations of the speech. First interpretation is that uh, Hassan Nasrullah was speaking on behalf of Iran and was trying to really distance themselves from the Hamas operation, but also suggesting that they're not going to intervene in a substantial way. But of course, that um, uh, possibly contradicts what's happening in so-called northern Israel on the border with, with Lebanon, where Lebanon is, uh, where the Hezbollah in Lebanon are engaged in skirmishes, let's call them skirmishes, with uh, the Israeli state. And some, by some accounts, a third of Israel's army is preoccupied on that border. And, and in a way, it's taken, it's, it's creating some relief uh, for Hamas uh, or for the Palestinians uh, in the operation in Gaza. How do you interpret Nasrallah's uh, speech? I think that when it comes to Hezbollah or indeed Iranian proxies, I think it's easier understood by remembering where Iran was at just before October 7th. Mm. Iran was in a reconciliation process with Saudi Arabia. It was talking about reviving the nuclear uh, nuclear talks, and it was about cementing its ally in Yemen, in uh, the Houthis, and cementing its militias in the other in Syria and these other places. Yeah. It was about trying to reconcile Assad with the rest of the Arab states so that the Arab states would invest in Syria so that that money could go to Tehran, and Tehran could take its reward for having rescued the Assad regime. The point here being is Iran's main policy was de-escalation, reconciliation, and rapprochement. Iran was not, did not see itself in a position where it wanted to escalate, and the reason it was pursuing reconciliation and rapprochement, or accepting the call for reconciliation from Saudi Arabia, was because the Iranians had their hands on their knees, they were panting, they were tired, they were saying, let's take a time to breathe before we start up again in five, six years, and continue to antagonize the rest of the the, the Arab uh, and, and the other Arab states or the like. And this is because of very economic crisis. Economic crises and the like. So when this situation explodes in Palestine, when now the Israelis are marching in, the Iranians are approaching it from the perspective, this has come at the worst time. Iranians share the same position as Saudi and, and Erdogan and all the other Muslim states. There could not have been a worse time for the Palestinians to start and, and, and for the situation to explode once more. And that's why the Iranians are caught in a very difficult situation whereby they fear that if they abandon Hamas in Palestine, it will send a message to the Houthis in Yemen and the 23 militias of the Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq and Hassan Nasrallah in Lebanon 
and Assad that there is a scenario where Iran would abandon its allies. Iran is legendary in the region. I don't say that in a positive way, mm -hmm. in that Iran never abandons its allies. Iran never sells out its militias. Iran is not like Saudi Arabia or the UAE or, or, or the other countries where they pull the rug from underneath their allies when it suits them. Iran sticks by its militias at all times, even when they're under pressure. So the Iranians believe that they have to do something with regards to Hamas and try to ease that burden. They've lined up their militias. They've shown some posturing but they have sent a clear message that we are posturing in the hope that the Americans can get the Israelis to back down. The message that, has, that is going between the Iranians and the Americans is a simple one. We really don't want escalation. We don't want to go to war. We don't want to fight. The skirmishes are designed to show that we're taking a stance. It's not about actually provoking a war. That's why for all of the rockets that are going over the Lebanon and Tel Aviv, Lebanon and Israel, I don't want to say Israel, but yeah. between the border, on the Lebanese border, yeah. the reason it hasn't resulted in all-out war is because there is a clear understanding between the parties that this should not escalate more than this. And that's why when the Israelis started to understand firmly that this, uh, this understanding would stay in place, they began their ground invasion. Mm -hmm. They delayed it because they weren't sure what the Iranians were doing. Right. And when they were sure that the Iranians were posturing more than getting in, they decided to enter into the ground invasion. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was interesting that Hassan Nasrallah's speech in the build-up, there were many prominent Sunni figures who were desperately hoping that Hassan Nasrallah would be in the quote of one of them, the Salah al-Din of the day. And when he didn't, we saw a wave of apologies from very prominent figures saying that my faith in Hassan Nasrallah and Hezbollah was misplaced. I think that the Iranians have the same view as Erdogan and bin Salman and bin Zayed and, uh, and the Sisi and the King Abdullah which is that public opinion and public pressure, if it continues at this rate, eventually Biden will have to change his mind on the ceasefire. The polls in America already show that he's trailing in six different states. The pollsters are saying this is because of the economy and because of Biden's position yeah. with regards to Israel and Palestine. Yeah. Erdogan and bin Salman and the Iranians are saying, look, this won't last for months. This will let's hope that it lasts only for a few weeks. And let's all in the meantime plan to show positions where we can later show the world and say, this is the stance that we took mm. for the Palestinians and the, and, and the Israelis. Politically, it's not a bad stance to take. Politically, it makes sense. But the reason why I mentioned with regards to Iran is because while Iran is posturing and there are missiles being exchanged, it reminds me a lot of when Qasem Soleimani was assassinated in 2019. Mm. When Qasem Soleimani was assassinated, everybody said there would be a war between Iran and the US. Mm. Instead, what we saw was the Iranians saw that the militias were looking at each other saying, Sayyid Qasim Soleimani has been killed and he's the top dog, he's the top don. Mm. If they can get Qasim Soleimani, imagine what they could do to me. Mm. So all the militias suddenly were, were concerned. So the Iranians decided to launch a show of force, fire missiles at any random place to show they have power, and then they, they, they de-escalated. Empty that military bases. Yeah. Essentially, on the edge of military bases, the yeah. Americans understood the message, let them you know, shake off some steam. Trump alluded to it last week did, or earlier yes, yeah. to something similar. I believe yeah. that, that, is the, that he's telling the truth in yeah, this. Yeah. But the point is that the Iranians, I think, are posturing. It doesn't mean the Iranians won't get involved. I think one of the things that's been quite fascinating is all the analyses, there is not a single sentence that expresses fear about Turkey or fear about Jordan or Egypt. The only sentences are all fear about whether Iran will get involved or not. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a possibility Iran will get involved but I think as it stands, Iran is more posturing and there is a desperate hope that the public pressure will force the Americans to change their mind. And many are seeing the humanitarian pause as an indication that Biden might change his mind. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but I think that's the position of the Iranians.
Can I take a, a slight detour as we're on the subject of Iran? Uh, many Muslims still feel that Iran is a force for good and their relationship with Hamas and their relationship with the Palestinian cause, the Arab rulers have deserted Palestine, yet Iran has remained firmly pro-Palestine. Uh, so there is this perception that Iran is a good actor amongst in a region of pretty bad actors. Um, can you talk to maybe the malign influence of Iran? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about Iran in, in Syria. Now, you know, its actions in Syria were deplorable and um, uh, the West always focused on ISIS, but Iranian militias acted like ISIS in many respects and they committed uh, horrific crimes uh, in Syria. How do you evaluate Iran's position vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim Ummah and our attitude towards them uh, versus the Arab rulers? I think that one of the failings of Muslims in general is, I, I don't know if it is disinterest, I don't know if it is a, a lack of desire to learn about the affairs of the other places in our Ummah. Mm -hmm. The reason why I say that is because I think that one of the greatest tragedies that colonization did to the Muslim Ummah was it detached our consciousness from each other. If you read Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah, Ibn Khaldun talks about the affairs from Morocco all the way to Iran and beyond. And he talks about it like he knows the intricate details because for him, the consciousness of the Ummah spreads across all of those territories. It's not unnatural for a Muslim to know the affairs of their brothers and sisters in different parts. Mm. I think that one of the tragedies of the part of colonization was it cut our consciousness, which means that when people talk about Iran's influence in the region, there's often a very simplistic, naive approach of, we are all Muslim brothers, let's just get along. Mm. The reason that Iran is derided in the region is because the number of Muslims that Iran has killed since 1979 in its pursuit of exporting the revolution has been huge. It's vast amount of Muslims. The Prop, the, the propping up of militias in individual countries and using them to undermine central governments and then allowing those militias to roam with impunity where they can commit sectarian killings is what has resulted in Iran having a very negative image amongst the Arabs in the, in the countries where Iran has influence. Yeah. The reason why I said is if you go to Algeria, they will often sympathize with the Iranians on the basis that Iran has a good stance with regards to Palestine. But when you go and ask the Yemeni, who then complains and says, listen, the Houthis believe that it is wajib that only somebody from Ahl al-Bayt is allowed to rule and that it is wajib for a Muslim to keep fighting until his dying breath to bring somebody from Ahl al-Bayt, in this case, Abd al-Malik al-Houthi or, uh, or Badr al-Din al-Houthi, to bring them to power. Mm. And they launched seven wars since, just since 2004. They launched seven wars for the sole purpose of bringing Ahl al-Bayt, because Ahl al-Bayt are the sole people to have the rule. The Yemeni does not have a positive image of this ideology that Iran has brought into Yemen and managed to convince the Houthis and supported the Houthis in toppling the internationally recognized government, which was agreed upon by a national dialogue of all the Yemeni parties that the Houthis themselves participated in as well. The Yemeni believes that Iran is shouting about Palestine today, but look what it did to me in my own country. Mm. That in Iraq, for example, when you look at the militias and the way they marched north towards Mosul or the like, mm. they were holding up banners saying, this is the revenge for Sayyid al-Hussein, anhu. When they put this banner, the Sunni in Iraq turned around and said, yeah, what did I have to do with what happened to Hussein? Yes. But they, with the way they put this banner and the way they pushed it and the way the militias committed atrocities in their march in Iraq has meant that people have a negative view in Iran. In Syria, 
The way they stood with Bashar al-Assad, for those who don't know, Syria has seen only two presidents since the 1970s, Hafez al-Assad and his son Bashar al-Assad. When the Syrians took to the streets to say we're tired of family rule, we're tired of a regime where the walls have ears, we want dignity and freedom because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has afforded this to us in the Quran and said that it's a right. Mm. When Iran says absolutely not because Bashar al-Assad, whose actions are secular, but he hails from an Alawi family, which is from a similar ideology. When Iran sends its militias in Iraq to cross the border, and when the Qasim Soleimani negotiates ceasefire agreements, whereby Sunni populations in the south are put on buses to be relocated to the north, in exchange for Shia populations in the north to be relocated to the south so that Iran can build what's being touted as a Shia crescent. Mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine a Syrian saying that the Iranians are genuine about their support for Palestine. And this is why I think that while some people will say this is not the time to be talking about Iran and Iran is supporting Palestine or the like, mm -hmm. the reason that Saudi Arabia, not bin Salman here, now I'm talking about Saudi Arabia as a state, the reason Saudi Arabia has been pursuing tighter security agreement, agreements with the Americans is because the Saudis believe that the Iranians have surrounded them in the north, surrounded them to the south, surrounded them to the east. And Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, the leader of the Iraqi militias that are loyal to Iran, who was killed with Qasem Soleimani in the drone strike, there is a video that went viral up just before he died where students in Iran are saying to him in Persian, yeah, Abu, Abu Mahdi al-Muhannis, you are a mujahid, you are a hero, and one day, inshallah, you will liberate Palestine. And he says, and, he, and the enemy is Israel. He goes, no, the enemy is not Israel. Riyadh, Riyadh, we go after Saudi first. Mm. So, and this is why I think that sometimes when people look at the states, I'm not justifying Saudi's position, but if you ask me as a political analyst, I would, I would say that bin Salman's pursuit of a NATO-style security agreement is not coming because he wants to please the Americans. It's coming because he truly believes Iran poses an existential threat. Mm. And when Saudis say that Israel is less of a threat to me, that it's a threat to the Palestinians, but not to me, but Iran is an immediate threat, even mm. if I dislike the argument, even if I reject it because of the manner in which it's used, there is a basis in when you look at the political field as to why they believe that. And that's why I think that Iran's words sound nice when it talks about Palestine. But when you look at the actions on the ground, and when you look at, for example, in Iraq, in Iraq, remember, from 2003, after the US invasion, it was pro-Iran parties that ran the government. They had a golden opportunity to show us what an I what the governance that ideology ideology produces, mm. what governance that an ideology that forbids every Muslim from political power except the descendants of Ahl al-Bayt, something that the Prophet Muhammad never ordered or never told the Muslims whatsoever. They had a chance to show us in those 15, 20 years in which they ruled what their rule looks like. And we found it to be sectarian. We found it to be brutal. We found it to be violent. And we found it to be rooted in this idea of taking revenge on people who have nothing to do with a crime that was committed many years ago. And that's why with Iran, I've been accused heavily and I'll probably be accused again in the comments. Sami, that we, we notice that you always hesitate when you talk about Iran. It's because I acknowledge that the Iranian posturing has made Israel hesitate. I acknowledge that the Iranian posturing has helped to ease, I know it sounds weird in this context, ease the immediate nature of the suffering of the Palestinians. It made Israel hesitate. At the same time, I am not sure if what Iran is doing in Palestine forgives and wipes out what it's done 
in those other different countries. So when people are celebrating that Houthis are firing missiles towards the Israelis, part of me thinks, a large part of me, that if the Houthis ended their war in Yemen, it would be more favorable and beneficial to the Ummah and Palestine than firing missiles to the, against the Israelis or the like. That's my view on Iran. Yeah. I appreciate that it upsets many people, yeah. but I do think that what they have done in the region has been catastrophic. And I think that what they are trying to... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Pursue in the region is something that is not beneficial to the Ummah. No, I, I agree entirely. And I think uh, a lot of this comes from strong political awareness and to detach ourselves from the political leaders. As you've detached yourself from Turkey and Saudi Arabia and, and these governments, uh, we all need to detach ourselves from very unsavory regimes. In Syria, in Iraq, Iranian militias have engaged in mass murder. They've engaged in rape. They've engaged in... Uh, torture at a mass scale, and there's plenty of evidence to 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 uh, corroborate all of this. Um, can I ask you again? And sorry, I'm going on a detour uh, once again. But uh, just as we're talking about this subject, there is a strand of opinion here in the West amongst Westerners. You can call it the anti-imperialism imperialism left, which uh, believes in a way that Iran is involved in an anti-imperialist struggle, and so they found a meeting of minds between the left, the socialist left, or at least the radical socialist left, not all socialists, but a radical socialist left in Iran. Uh, so you've got people like George Galloway who would protect uh, Iran and its, its actions in the region and praise, Khali, uh, uh, praise uh, Soleimani and his uh, sectarianism, as well as, of course, the, the actions of Russia. Um, I, I suppose this is a question about political awareness and astuteness from our side. How much should we be aware of the... Uh, the agendas of these left, radical left-leaning groups. Napoleon has a, has a saying. He says, the road to hellfire is paved with good intentions. Mm. A lot of these opinions don't actually come from a malicious nature at all. I think a lot of them actually come from a very true sincerity. I think when you sit with a lot of people, there is a sincere desire to see the world to be a better place. Yeah. And a lot of times they believe that because the Americans have wrought such destruction on the world, those who oppose the Americans must be good. Mm. And vice versa. And that's why I think that the words of Ali ibn Abi Talib عنه, are, are very profound in this. In, 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 in when he said that the truth is not determined by who is advocating it, but rather the sincerity and truthfulness of a person is determined as to whether he tells the truth or not. Mm. And I think that's significant. In that, and the point being is just because Jalal says something, it doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. I judge Jalal based on whether he's standing with what's right. So I think that a, a lot of it comes here in the, in the sense that given that Iran is resisting the US, it is. 
given that Iran is a thorn in US foreign policy in the region, given that Iran does act as an independent actor, given that it has displayed power, mm. given it has survived sanctions, given that it survived sanctions that were imposed in order to force ideological changes and the Iranians have held very strongly to that ideological belief, to that 12 Shia uh, idea, faith or the like, yeah. given that they held very close to their culture, there is much to admire about the resistance that Iran has demonstrated against all odds. And that admiration, which is legitimate and justified, even if I believe it sometimes to be misplaced, mm. the admiration for Iran's ability to stand up to the United States of America and survive and be able to pressure the Americans in the region through the use of political leverage or the like, through the use of militias that we condemned earlier, the like, let's talk amorally. Mm. There is a sense amongst people who have no power, who, be, who, are, who are devastated in despair that they have no power, to look to Iran and say alternative powers exist. Mm. And therefore a natural sympathy emerges from that. And one of the things that I find quite interesting, and, and, and the reason why I hesitate sometimes when I talk about Iran, is that many people view it as a binary of either Saudi or Iran. Yeah. Either the Arabs or the Persians. Either So the suggestion is that if you dislike Iran, you are promoting Saudi. Or if you dislike Saudi, you are pro-Iran. And the issue with politics is that it's not clear-cut like that at all. The Saudis and the Iranians have had negative influences on the region. To denounce one does not mean benefiting the other. At the same time, however, politics is about where do you find the opportunities? And I think for the leftists, the reason that they align with Syria and align with the Iranians is because they identify and they say, look, and, and this is a rational argument. If Bashar al-Assad falls, the other Arab states have shown that the US can regain its influence by supporting a coup and bringing somebody else to power. So given Assad is resisting the US, let's, let's keep the resistance alive instead of giving an opportunity for the US to come in and alter the regime. That may happen. That's their interpretation of the politics. That's probably why they stand with Assad or the like, yeah. who has butchered his people and massacred his people. But the point I want to say is this. Sometimes it doesn't come from a bad place, even though I resent it and I think the stance is vile. It doesn't come from a bad place. And the reason why I want to affirm that is to affirm the power of da'wah and affirm the power of debate and affirm the power of political awareness. The power of convincing the other side that their stance is misplaced. True. The necessity to go and talk to these people and say, look, this is the reality of what's happening. Yeah. Because often a lot of the positions are rooted in ignorance, yeah. such as the position of Iran and what it's doing in the region. And we don't do enough of that. You're right. Yeah. Sami, when we last spoke, you talked about the events of 7 of, of October as being, uh, as having taken Israel by surprise and Netanyahu was cobbling around for a coherent strategy. Do you feel this coherent strategy has now come about? The ground war has begun and they're making steady progress, I suppose. Uh, of course, through brutal means, have the uh, Israelis now uh, come to a, a coherent view as to what's going to happen in the immediate and what's the uh, post-war situation? I think that when you look at the debate inside Israel itself, hmm. one thing becomes abundantly clear. Netanyahu's political future is in doubt. When you look at the fact that Netanyahu has not attended any of the funerals of the hostages, the reason he hasn't attended is because he's concerned that the hostage families will lambast him and that they will shout at him and that they will humiliate him. Mm. When you look at the fact that protests have been held by the families of hostages denouncing Netanyahu and accusing Netanyahu of not taking the lives of the hostages seriously mm. by carpet bombing Gaza, you can see that Netanyahu is under pressure even from the families of the hostages. Mm. 
When the Times of Israel reported last week, last week from this recording, that when Hamas released the two elderly hostages, the Times of Israel reported that the IDF and Netanyahu were annoyed and frustrated at the release of the hostages because they feared that the release of the hostages will dampen the, the ardor and the desire for a ground offensive, suggesting that Netanyahu prefers the hostages to stay in Gaza at the mercy of the bombing campaign rather than having them released because he believes that the priority is a ground offensive in Gaza because he's concerned that he needs a huge prize to give the Israelis in order to rescue his political future. When you see that Ehud Olmer, the former prime minister, comes out and says that Netanyahu's political future has been fatally damaged and that Netanyahu is scrambling and that he's concerned and that the reason that the war is continuing is not because of Israel's strategic aims, but because Netanyahu believes that if the war stops, then he will have to face an Israeli public that is demanding his resignation. Mm. When you look at the polls inside Israel, that suggests that more than 60% of Israelis blame Netanyahu for what has happened and more than 60% are demanding Netanyahu's resignation. It becomes abundantly clear that Netanyahu and the situation inside Israel is not united behind the Grand Offensive. Mm. And the Grand Offensive is more a Netanyahu project than it is an Israeli project. Because Netanyahu believes that only one prize can satiate the Israeli public and can get the Israeli public to get back on side. And that's the annexation of more land to give to Israeli settlers to say, yes, we struggled in the October 7th, but look, I finally managed to expand the borders of Israel. Mm. Netanyahu is hoping that that's the prize that he will be able to give him. Mm. The, and also when you look at the fact that it took more than a week for Netanyahu to form a war cabinet. And in that war cabinet, a lot of parties did not join that war cabinet. It shows that for the opposition parties, they see events as a Netanyahu issue, not an Israel issue. Think about it. If it was an issue of a national crisis, the parties would have rushed to form a war cabinet with Netanyahu. The fact that they did not is because when they looked at the situation, they believed that the threat was not as great as was being made up by Netanyahu, that the IDF had enough power to push back the Palestinians, and that now the only reason the war is going on is because Netanyahu is concerned for his political future. When you look at the political article that we talked about earlier, which reports that Biden told Netanyahu that you cannot say or stay on after this issue finishes, yeah. after this offensive finishes, it shows that even in the US, in the White House, in those closed door meetings, they know, they see that it is Netanyahu who has caused this issue and that Netanyahu is under pressure. Mm -hmm. The point here being is when you're asking about the Israeli strategy, I think there is no Israeli strategy. There is a Netanyahu strategy, a Netanyahu strategy that says that we need this ground offensive because if we don't do it, then I will be forced to resign. Yeah. And that's why that the Israelis, when you talk about the strategic aims, a lot of the debate inside Israel itself is what strategic aims have actually been achieved? What high-profile Hamas commander have we killed? What high-profile Hamas base have we defeated? Instead, we're taking casualties and those casualties are piling up because Netanyahu's strategy is no longer about strategic aims for Israel. It's about right now, if I stop now, I will be forced to resign. Let me prolong this war until an opportunity presents itself where I can survive and stay on in power. Do you think that the alleged view that the Israelis are trying to ethnically cleanse Gaza, I mean, there was the initial suggestion that they were trying to, the US were trying to pay uh, the, the the Egyptians and you've dispelled that that's just not going to happen anymore. But do you think that it's realistic that they're going to, in effect, colonize the north of Gaza, north of uh, Wadi Gaza and ethnically cleanse the entire population to the south? Uh, in effect, an, an expansionist policy, and, and that's partly driving 
this uh, policy of Netanyahu? I think that Netanyahu sees only one way out, and that's to take land in the West Bank and to take land in Gaza. And I think that when you look at the Israeli allies, even in the US, I think there is a rabid thirst to take more land off the Palestinians as part of expanding this Israeli state. Remember Netanyahu before uh, the October 7th, the week before at the UN, he held up that map which completely erased Palestine uh, from the map. I think that when it comes to Netanyahu and what he's trying to pursue, I think the ethnic cleansing is the manner in is the gift that he wants to give to the Israelis to forgive him for what happened on October 7th. I think the ethnic cleansing is the dream of those US officials who support Israel, who believe in the expansion of Israel. They believe that given that a crisis has emerged, let's turn it into an opportunity and take parts of Gaza and take parts of the West Bank. Yeah. The issue that has emerged, however, is that Blinken is struggling to maintain diplomatic cover and support for Israel's bid at ethnic cleansing, which is why Blinken buckled and essentially said, okay, I won't call for a ceasefire, but we need a humanitarian pause because we're under heavy pressure mm. from public opinion. Blinken is trying to provide a cover to provide that ethnic cleansing where he presents a humane and merciful choice to the Palestinians. Give up your lands to Israel for a new batch of Israeli settlers or die. I give you four hours every single day. This is Blinken's genius idea. I give you four hours every single day to leave your lands and leave your homes so that Jewish settlers can come in and live in those homes so that we can build from them a lovely beach and lovely shopping malls and lovely homes. We need you to leave these lands in order to do so. Netanyahu was public about it and the Israeli ministers about genocide, about using nuclear weapons, mm. about wiping them out, about annihilating the animals, public statements coming out and making the Americans think these guys don't understand anything about PR. You can't come out publicly and say it. Let's go and provide that public PR for. One of the examples is that when Israel struck the hospital, the, the, the refugee camp, oh, okay. when they struck the refugee camp, the Jebeli refugee camp, yeah. The IDF admitted that they had bombed it, mm. but the, that, that killed 400 refugees. Mm. But the New York Times felt it was such bad PR for the Israelis that they said an explosion happened in the refugee camp. Mm. CNN said it was a blast that took place in the refugee camp. Mm. They believed that the Israelis were so bad at their PR, they decided to embark on the PR for them. The point being is that Blinken is struggling in that Israel is being so brazen about its desire to commit genocide and ethnic cleansing that he's, he's going on this tour and providing these ideas of humanitarian pauses in order to try to facilitate it. But the crux of your question is, Israel is Netanyahu is trying to perform ethnic cleansing because he knows that's what gets Israelis really going. He know, the US officials want to see ethnic cleansing, but on the condition that it does not compromise their interest elsewhere. And there is a debate now in the US as to the extent that Israel should be allowed in order to embark on that ethnic cleansing. Why would the United States embark on this uh, process of ethnic cleansing? Because it's going to possibly save Netanyahu from his public. Uh, and as we know, Biden despises Netanyahu. Biden wants Netanyahu to go. So in a way, it gives a lifeline to, to Netanyahu. Why? Uh, because, and, 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 and it creates a big problem for Biden at home. You've just talked about uh, the, the poll ratings of Biden. Um, they're plummeting. Uh, the recent uh, polls in six of the five battlegrounds, uh, five of the six battleground states suggest that Biden would lose those states. And Palestine has a part to play in that because young progressives now no longer have a majority in favor of Israel. So it seems like that policy uh, is going to harm Biden in the long run. I think that the reason that the US is lending support 
has already been said by a number of U.S. politicians. Mm. Robert Kennedy, for example, who wants to run for president or is hoping to run for president, said that Israel is our outpost in the Middle East. Yeah. It is our, it, it belongs to it. It's like a colony that we have there right. that allows us to protect American interests. Hillary Clinton, however, hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Hillary Clinton, although she said it in terms of Hamas, but I think that it's more than Hamas. Put yourself in the position of the U.S. whereby the Palestinian cause was dying. Normalization was taking place. Saudi was normalizing with the Israelis. Erdogan was pursuing closer ties with Netanyahu. It all looked as if suddenly the Palestinians no longer had any, any agency or power. When you look at the situation as it stands now, across the entire world, people are now posing questions about the existence of Israel. People are now asking, how did it come to be? They are opening the history books. Yeah. They are learning about the Palestinians and they are sympathizing with the Palestinians. Yeah. The reason the US is supporting Israel is because it believes that the environment that has been created now is not one in which the Palestinians no longer have any power, but rather that a shift is taking place that has empowered the Palestinians, which means now that the invincible image of the Israelis and the invincible image of the US ally has been completely tattered and that if they do not support Israel and if they do not allow Israel to ethnically cleanse, then the conclusion of the Muslim world and the conclusion of the world at large will be that the Palestinian resistance can work, that the Palestinians can actually secure their rights, they can actually pressure the Israelis and that will have sweeping ramifications for how it shifts. So the Americans believe not necessarily that the Israelis uh, should completely ethnically cleanse, even though some of them do, but the, is the U.S. believes that the Palestinians have to be battered and pay a price that is so high that the world will say that resistance is futile and is simply not worth it. Mm. And I think the price that they are considering is let's ethnically cleanse and take territory so that Palestinians know that the next time they resist, they will lose more land and they will lose more territory. And that's why the Americans are firmly supporting the Israelis in this. So on a broader level, uh, much of uh, foreign policy, whether that's in Britain or Europe or in, in America, is determined by national interests. And there is a bipartisan support on both sides of the Atlantic for Israel. How much can this uh, policy, this embrace of Israel be dislodged by public opinion in either of the countries or in, in Europe? I think that it's important to put things into context. Genocide is unfolding before us. Ethnic cleansing is unfolding before us. Mm. And the reality is that the response to it has been very weak. And in terms of deploying power to forcefully resist genocide and ethnic cleansing, that power has been absent. And that's been the cause of a lot of despair amongst many people. One of the reasons that we focus on public opinion a lot as a political analyst, why, why I've been emphasizing that point a lot, is because in the absence of a force that can prevent that genocide and ethnic cleansing, the issue becomes one of what can we do and what are the options that are available to us in order to try to force through a ceasefire. Mm. When I mentioned earlier that Erdogan has been changing his position as a result of Turkish public opinion, that's Erdogan buckling to public opinion that the Turks have created and generated, and that has scared Blinken enough into forcing him into a Middle East tour to go and try to meet with Erdogan. Erdogan ignored him and went instead to the north of Turkey to go to drink tea, and he left Hakan Fidan to talk for two hours with Blinken, and Blinken left, and the reports are that Blinken told the White House that everybody's angry with us in the region. But these are, this is public opinion within those Muslim countries. This is public opinion in those Muslim what countries. What about, say, the Iraq war? You know, two million people marched against the Iraq war. Tony Blair went to war. How much can public opinion be really changed in these Western countries? I think that one, one of the reasons why I don't want to compare it too much to the Iraq war 
was because 9-11 created such a surge of support for the US that when Bush came out and said, you're either with us or against us, and when the FBI started cracking down on Muslim organizations in the US, and when the US made clear that there was an appetite for war, when King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, who was crown prince at the time, was left reeling and trying to reverse to prevent him from being on the list of countries that might be invaded, I think the overwhelming vibe at that time as a result of what happened in 9-11 meant that for all of the protests and the marches, or the, like the Cassis Belly had already been determined, and there was nobody who was going to stop the US. I think this time is different for two reasons. The first is that when people look back at what happened in the Iraq war and 9-11, everybody's referencing the Taliban. Mm. Everybody is saying that, look, we've been in this situation before, we went gung-ho before, we supported these invasions before, 20 years later, the Taliban came to power. So there is an increased restraint, sounds ironic and strained in the situation, but there is a increased reflection with regards to what action should be taken with regards to what's happening. Mm. The second point that's worth noting is with regards to public opinion is Bush was not facing an imminent election when 9-11 happened. Biden is facing an election that is upcoming. Biden is concerned about the polls about being behind in six states. Mm. The reason public opinion matters is because in the CNN article, one thing that was quite interesting is it reports that when Biden spoke to Netanyahu, he told him that the relentless bombardment of the images and the videos that are going viral on social media is making it increasingly untenable to uphold a position whereby the US does not support a, a ceasefire. Yeah. That the bombardment of these social media videos that is describing the reality of the atrocities that are being committed in Gaza is making it difficult for Biden to hold his ground. You asked what difference does public opinion make? The humanitarian pause in and of itself is a buckling on the part of Blinken because he wants to present the ethnic cleansing in a more humanitarian way. And Axios reported, as we mentioned earlier, that Netanyahu was resisting the humanitarian pause because he feared it was Biden buckling and Biden using it as a way to lure him into a ceasefire. Mm. The reason that humanitarian pause is causing friction between the Israelis and the Americans is because Biden is not concerned about Saudi Arabia or Turkey or the like. Biden is concerned about public opinion at home. Mm. When you look at Congress, when Rashida Tlaib gave her speech and then she was censored and they voted to censor her, mm. one thing that I, thought went, or that I thought went under the radar was that 192 Cong of members of Congress voted in favor of Rashida Tlaib. 188 voted in favor of Rashida and four decided to abstain. That means there was a difference of about 50 votes or 40 votes. That means that Israel failed to convince 192 members of Congress, more than 40% of Congress, to stand with it in order to silence Rashida Tlaib. That's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. That's as a result of public opinion, as a result of public pressure. And that was noted by the Democrats because a subsequent article revealed mm -hmm. that the Democrats are, 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 there's huge tensions now inside the Democrats with regards to Biden's stance with regards to Israel. When Michigan and two other of the swing states are under threat from Trump and show that Trump is leading, knowing that in those states, the Muslim population, which is a minority, but makes the difference in those votes, when suddenly Biden sees himself lacking in the polls, this is why Kamala Harris came out, the vice president, and said, we've come up with an Islamophobia program in order to combat Islamophobia. Kamala Harris didn't do it because Biden suddenly cares about the Muslims. Mm. Biden didn't call Rashida Tlaib throughout the month when the Palestinians were being bombarded. Mm. The reason Kamala Harris did it is because in the, on the table where the Democrats are talking to each other, they've said, look, Michigan, we need that Muslim vote. We need these wretched Muslim votes. We need these Muslim votes that ordinarily we wouldn't care about. 
because they might make the difference in terms of Michigan. And the Muslims are now saying that while Trump is bad, Biden is committing genocide. Mm -hmm. That we survived four years of Trump, but 10,000 Palestinians didn't survive four years of, of Biden. Mm -hmm. The point here being is that the Democrats are buckling under that public opinion. The point that I want to make here is this. The outcome is not ideal. When people hear it, I often say, okay, but that's not stopping what's happening in Palestine. That's true. Yeah. But it's putting pressure in altering the course of what's happening in Palestine. Blinken would have preferred Netanyahu to give him a free pass to completely ethnically cleanse Gaza. He's now imposed a humanitarian pause, which is a cover for ethnic cleansing. But the necessity of that cover came about because of public opinion. It came about because of you in the thinking Muslim. It came about because of those who are listening to us. It came about because of the two who decided to come late at night because I came late for this appointment mm -hmm. and they've decided to tolerate it and sit down and help with the camera work or the like. It's because of the public opinion that's been generating that this is buckling, which leads me as a political analyst to conclude that if this public pressure continues, today we have a humanitarian pause Tomorrow we can get a ceasefire. Mm. That if we keep up this pressure, if we keep up the, the bombardment, as Biden called it, of those social media videos that are making it difficult to uphold support for Israel, then eventually a ceasefire will come about. And then that leads to the conclusion as to how do you punish the Democrats for what happened? Some people are saying that if we don't vote for the Democrats, Trump will be worse. But there is an argument to be made that if Muslims still vote for the Democrats or still vote for Labour, then the Democrats will come to the conclusion that no matter how many genocides we commit against the Muslims, the Muslims will always come to us because they don't have a vote. There is an email that is being sent out by the Democrats the past three, four days in which they are saying that Trump wants to put the Muslim ban and we are against the Muslim ban. <laughs> the reaction of the Muslims is I will never vote Biden again. Okay. It may provoke a debate in the Democrats where the Democrats say, look, okay, how can we win the Muslim vote? Let's move Biden and bring another candidate in his place. At that point, Muslims can go vote for the Democrats or the like. But the point here being is this. I understand the frustration that we're not seeing the results that we want. I understand the frustration that change is not happening at the pace that we want. But the reason change is happening is because of public opinion, which leads me to conclude that if that public opinion was not there, the situation would be worse than it is now. And the fact that we're seeing these changes take place is because of public pressure means as a political analyst, as I'm, as I'm writing in the reports, as long as that public op opinion is sustained and the pressure is sustained, we could be closer to a ceasefire, not in a, in a matter of months, as Netanyahu is insisting, but perhaps even in weeks or perhaps days if we really push. Can I ask you about the position of the European Union? Um, I was speaking to a journalist uh, from Brussels and they suggested to me that uh, the position of uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, commission president and many members of the, of the commission and, and the hierarchy of, of the EU is actually far more firmly in a way behind Israel than even some of the American positions. Um, what do you think accounts for that? I mean, there was, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, she hasn't moved. She hasn't moved an inch since for the last five weeks. And she, her position is deplorable in, in so many ways. Yes, you've got the high representative of foreign affairs, uh, Joseph Borrell, who's somewhat contradicting her. Uh, but uh, EU position seems firmly in favor of Israel. Can you shed some light on why that is? I think that when it comes to the EU position, I think there are deep divisions inside the EU, which is why the EU, when people say that it doesn't have a major role to play in, the, in what's happening, mm. the reason it doesn't have a major role to play is because of the divisions. If it was united, it could play a stronger role. But because it is not united, it cannot play that role. 
because Joseph Borrell is saying that von der Leyen does not represent our position, because those ministers from Spain and Spain is coming out and calling for Netanyahu to be dragged before the International Criminal Court, it means that the motions in the EU that were designed to restrict social media's promotion of pro-Palestinian content have not gone through. Because of those divisions, it means the EU has been unable to help Israel in the manner that perhaps von der Leyen would have liked. And the reason that the motions and the bills have not been passed that Israel has been calling for is because of those particular divisions. Yeah. And the reason those divisions have been exacerbated is because of domestic public opinion. The reason we're seeing a lot of repressive measures emerge in France and in Germany with regards to pro-Palestinian sentiment is not because these governments necessarily are wholeheartedly behind the Israelis. Macron, for example, is now using the C word. He's used the word ceasefire at a Gaza event. And he also on record where he said the civilian casualties is far too much for us to keep supporting yeah. the Israelis. The reason the repressive measures are so hard is because the backlash to Israel is so great amongst the populations and the policymakers in the EU are unsure how to tackle that. Mm. In other words, what we're seeing as the EU position not budging, I actually argue that the inability of the EU to even present an effective stance that might be of use to the Israelis is because of those divisions. And I think that but for those divisions, we would have seen a more firmer stance. So I think that's something to, describe, to, to, to the EU's, to Spain's credit, and also to the credit of public opinion that exacerbated those differences. Sami, I've got two more questions left for you. Uh, this has been you know, really interesting and really useful for me. Um, do you think this is a game-changing moment? And I was speaking to a friend of mine who sort of somewhat cynically suggested that, okay, Muslims are pretty angry at the moment, but uh, come next year, come elections in America and Britain, uh, they're going to still vote for the left-leaning parties who have... Uh, endorsed and signed off genocide things are going to go back to normal um this is analogous maybe to the 2003 when there was a boycott campaign against american mcdonald's and coca-cola a year later i visited medina and spoke to a friend of mine who ran a restaurant and he said that you know although he banned coca-cola within a year uh, his customers wanted coca-cola back uh is it a game-changing moment or are we going to see more of the same once a ceasefire is announced and once uh, things die down? The problem with that argument is that it presumes that the status quo has been the same for the past 90, 100 years or even for the past 10 years. Yeah. It assumes that the status quo has been the same all of this person's life or all of our lives. It assumes that the events that we've seen in our lifetimes is the history of mankind. It assumes that the status quo where Israel is existing and where the Americans back the Israelis and where the EUs are back in the Israelis has always been the situation. Whereas the reality is you don't have to look far back to look at articles here in the UK in which they were deriding the Jewish population as aliens, where there were pogroms taking place, where they were trying to kick out the Jewish population and trying to send them anywhere but allow them to stay in Europe. Mm -hmm. I think that when it comes to these assumptions that somehow things will go back to the way they were before, they never do. They never go back to the way they were before. One of the reasons that the US has been rather hesitant with regards to the extent to which it is prepared to support Israel, again, I know that sounds strange, is because the US is concerned that its failure in Afghanistan means there should be a revision in terms of how it lashes out in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Two events that look similar are not the same because the context and the history of those events is very different. And that's why I think that while it's true 
that people are celebrating the way the Ummah has been mobilizing in terms of raising public awareness and why we're seeing all these videos of pro-Israelis who are now changing their minds and becoming pro-Palestinians while we're seeing more and more allies come out, while we're seeing a lot of the policymakers buckle towards public opinion. Mm. I think the cynicism that is emerging has more to do with a failure to accurately read the trends of history and a failure to appreciate the gains that have been made in history in and of itself. Mm. The reality is that in politics, politics is about taking opportunities. The reality is that now when you look at the way that people are talking about Palestine and Israel, before these events that took place in October, nobody was talking about the legitimacy of Israel as a state in the US or in Europe. Nobody was talking about the nature of Israel as a state in its dealing with Palestinians. Yeah. They were reading Apartheid on Human Rights Watch and they were thinking maybe is it an Apartheid, is it not? But now as a result of the atrocities, people are now talking about the nature of Israel so much so that there are some US intellectuals who came out and said, listen, in my readings, in my, in, in my books, I always support Israel. But after seeing what Israel has done, I can no longer good conscience support this. Mm -hmm. There was a famous rapper in the US who came out and said, I don't know much about Palestine and Israel, but I recognize a genocide when I see one, mm -hmm. which is making people's minds change. I think that even if your friend who is a cynic is unable to capitalize on that. Mm. I think there are many people now who are trying to capitalize on that. I give you an example of, for example, me and you sitting here, for example, yeah. and liaising and trying to raise that public awareness. After I do this interview, or when I did the interview beforehand, there are organizations from around the world who I've never spoken to, never met before, mm. who want to bring their, their efforts and our efforts, they want to combine them together. How can we amplify? And you've seen it before in the collaborations that people want to make with you because they want to cement those gains. Mm. And that's why I think that the direct answer is, Yes, I understand that people want to feel cynicism and pessimism over what is happening. I understand that the images of the Nakba are brutal. I understand that the images of the ethnic cleansing are brutal. I understand that the genocide is brutal. But when you read the articles that are coming out in the think tanks and in, the, and, and, and in established papers, you can see the change in rhetoric and the change in discourse with, to one that doesn't suggest that the Palestinians are being defeated, but one that suggests that Israel will no longer enjoy the support that it has enjoyed over the past 70 years. Just today, for example, in The Hill, a pro-Israeli writer has written that when all of this is over, one of the greatest damage that will happen to Israel is that Netanyahu now has alienated Israel's friends so much by his actions that Israel's friends may no longer be willing to provide the support that it did in the past. Even they are acknowledging that this is a game changer. Even they are acknowledging that things are moving. And I always strike the comparison whenever it comes to atrocities such as this to what happened in 1945 in Algeria where 30,000 Algerians were killed in the same year that the Geneva Convention was signed that every man is born free. In the same year that France was liberated from Nazi Germany, France massacred 30,000 Algerians with the view of establishing to the Algerians that any whiff of resistance will be met with a brutal massacre. 17 years later, Algeria was liberated. I think this is a game changer. Blinken is concerned it's a game changer. Biden is concerned it's a game changer. Erdogan is concerned it's a game changer, which is why he's adapting his rhetoric to make sure he's on the right side of history. Bin Salman believes it's a game changer, which is why he's trying to go through the Quran to find any ayat that might justify supporting the Israelis and condemning the Palestinians. Mm. I think they all believe it's a game changer, which leads me to believe that the one who doesn't believe it's a game changer is one who is not reading the situation correctly. Finally, Sami, uh, you've talked about the ineptitude of the Muslim rulers, their failure to use their leverage to deal with this crisis. Um, we believe, you and I believe, and I think the majority of Muslims actually believe that things are going to change. There is a 
a better Muslim world that may emerge. I don't know when that's going to emerge, whether I will see it, whether my children will see it, or their children will see it. But I believe that the Muslim world is going to become a better place. Describe that world for me. When you look at the seerah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa when you read it as a political book, you begin to dive more into the statements that are made during the crises of what happened. And when you read them, you start to realize that a lot of the crises and the responses are human. Growing up, you always feel like a Muslim world has to be perfect, devoid of conflict, devoid of issues and problems or the like. But when you read, for example, that Allah says in the Quran, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَأَطِيعُوا الرَّسُولَ وَأُولِي الْأَمْرِ مِنْكُمْ فَإِنْ تَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ فَرُدُّوهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمَ الْآخِرِ ذَلِكَ خَيْرٌ وَأَحْسَنُ تَأْوِيلًا O you who believe, obey Allah and this Prophet and those who rule over you. But in the event that you disagree with each other, who's disagreeing? It's the people and the rulers. Then go back to Allah and Rasul. Go back to the Quran and Sunnah. The arbitrator between the two, the arbiter between the two is the Quran and the Sunnah, implying that the people might be able to overrule the ruler or the ruler might make a mistake and therefore he needs to be corrected. So Allah is saying that in a Muslim world or ideal Muslim society or the like, mistakes are made that require the people to pressure the ruler to go back in terms of, in ter in terms of the way that the, the trajectory that he should be going. When the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and this is the hadith that really was a turning point for me in, in rereading some of the politics of our history. When the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says about Al-Hassan, his grandson, he says, this grandson of mine is a Sayyid and he will, recon he will reconcile between two large groups of Muslims. The two large groups he talks about are Muawiyah and Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhumah, radiallahu anhumah on the both of them. The Prophet ﷺ in this says that Al-Hassan is a noble because he will reconcile between the two. The Prophet ﷺ did not make a judgment who was right or wrong between Ali ibn Abi Talib and Muawiyah. He celebrated the reconciliation between two large groups of Muslims and the bringing of that ummah back together, a conflict between the Sahaba who were the best of people. Islam was not compromised despite what had happened. It continued to spread to Iraq, continued to spread to the four corners of the globe. The other thing that's worth noting is that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, in his lifetime achieved the greatest success of any creation. But that success, and I'm not belittling here, is politically only the conquering of Mecca and Medina. Mecca and Medina were considered cities by the Romans and the Persians that weren't worth conquering, that weren't worth, they weren't of strategic importance that were worth conquering. But the Prophet ﷺ, in taking those cities went down as the greatest influence in history and described by Michael Hart as the greatest influence in, in, in the history of mankind. Why? Because the significance was not the history, it was the impact that he left behind. It was the attitude that he left behind. It was the spirit amongst the Sahaba that he left behind that enabled them to deliver Islam and to carry it to all four corners of the world. The reason why I say that is because when people talk about describe what, what the ideal Muslim scenario looks like, I think that the focus is often on the, on the form and the shape as opposed to the attitude itself of what the ummah looks like. When I said earlier that it is Islam that makes the Muslims great, not the Muslims that make Islam great, it's because when Islam became the impetus for science, when people read Maraj al-Bahrini al-Taqiyan, Bainahuma barzakhun la yabghiyan, that the seas have been divided, between them is a barrier that don't cross. The attitude of the Sahaba was not, MashaAllah, look what Allah has written. 
The attitude of the Sahaba was, I want to understand it. I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to go out and I'm going to find where Maraj al-Bahrain And in that, he makes a discovery. When Allah says, Kullum fi falakin yasbahoon, when he talks about the planets and the stars, that they swim in the sky, the Sahabi did not say, Allah, what Allah says in the Quran. The Sahabi went, made a telescope, looked up into the sky and wanted to understand why the orbits go, wrong, go around, which is why Al-Biruni then came up with this idea of astronomy and, uh, and the like, which then inspired the Europeans to go and find. When the, when the Quran, for example, talks about that Allah created everything from water, the Sahabi didn't say, Allah, everything came from water. The Sahabi said, Allah said it, I'm going to go and prove it. And so he was suddenly incentivized to go and pursue science. When Islam became the incentive to propel people in their actions in life, Muslims became great. But when Islam became habitual rituals, when it came, became about ascetism, when it came about solely focusing on your spiritual relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's when Islam failed to lose its ability to innovate, its ability to propel people to success. And that's when you see the decline. The reason why I mentioned the idea about the form and the substance is because we've had Muslim nations before that collapsed. The reason they collapsed is because even though they were Muslim, there was something lacking in it. And that is an appreciation that Islam is the impetus that should drive you in your actions. Look at what's happening in Palestine today. When I said to you earlier that Blinken buckled and that the humanitarian pause, after Blinken banned his State Department from using the word ceasefire, when Blinken is now talking about humanitarian pause, he buckled because the ordinary Muhammad, Sarah, Zara, and all these other different Muslims decided to tweet on social media. Those Muslims said to themselves, Ya Allah, I don't have an army. I don't have a foreign minister. I don't have a big business. I don't have lots of money, but I have want, I want to use the powers that, are with, that you have given me in order to advance the cause of Islam and advance the cause of Palestine. They took one step. Allah took 10 and amplified the voice and Blinken is now bucketing. Jalal, you sat here and you said, I want to do a Thinking Muslim podcast and I want to bring speakers to promote the Palestinian cause. You brought Dr. Tariq Suidan, you brought other people and the like. You said, Allah, this is the power that I have. Allah, let's see how it goes. And in the end, the views that you're seeing on your channel, you took one step, Allah took 10. Everybody who talks to me says that they watch the Thinking Muslim podcast. You took one step, Allah took 10. Allah rewards the striving of an ummah. When Allah says in the Quran, Inna Allah la ma hatta ma When Allah says he does not change the state of a people until they change what is in themselves, many people interpret that area solely from an ascetic perspective. It's about the spirituality. What Allah means in this area is that an ummah that takes the step to strive, I amplify that striving and I amplify the efforts on it because all outcomes belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The reality is that when we're talking about the ideal Muslim order or the like, I think the ideal Muslim order is less about its form and more about what this ummah is about, what this ummah chooses to strive to believe in. Everybody who's tweeted about Palestine made a difference. Everybody who liked to tweet about Palestine made a difference. Everybody who commented made a difference. They forced those posts on the algorithm to go higher and higher, which reached new areas where they had never reached before, which made ordinary people who supported Israel turn around and say, I can no longer support a genocide. It is the ordinary Muslim who said, Ya Rabb, I am weeping and crying about what happened in Palestine. And Ya Allah, I want to do something and I don't have the power and I don't like my rulers who aren't doing anything. Ya Allah, I'm going to do the basic of Iman. I'm going to comment on it on Twitter and I'm just going to pour my heart out. Because the efforts, because that person made the intention to say, Allah, all power belongs to you. I'm going to use the powers that I have. They forced 192 Congress people in Congress 
to vote against Israel, unprecedented. They forced Biden to tell the Israelis that the content that they're sharing on social media means I can't keep supporting the Israelis. You don't have months, you only have weeks. And if we continue, we can get that ceasefire. An ideal Muslim society is not one that is devoid of problems. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah, in Surah Ghafir, where he says, this used to stop me when it, when it came to politics. Allah says, and forgive them their sins. These are the angels when they make dua for those who say astaghfirullah, for those who seek Allah. The angels say, Allah forgive them and wipe out their sins. For the ones for whom you wipe out their sins, they are the ones who've got the victory. Note the category, the characteristic they have given of the Muslim who gets the ultimate victory. It's not the perfect Muslim. It's not the Muslim who doesn't buckle. It's not the Muslim who doesn't despair. It's not the Muslim who doesn't weep. It's not the Muslim who is power, who does, who feels they have no power. It's the Muslim who despite their buckling, despite the fact they have no power, despite the fact that they feel like they are making mistakes or despite their sins, they, when they buckle and they fall over, they get back up, they wipe themselves down and they say, you know what, I'm going to keep going. Allah forgives those sins and so he gives them the greatest victory. Islam, the reality is this, what made Islam great is what Islam inspired in the Ummah. And what ruined the Muslim states is when they forgot what had inspired them about Islam in the first place. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is why I say the Quran should be read also as a political book. Allah has no need of Muslims to deliver his message. Allah sent Yunus السلام, to his people to say to them, to guide them to the deen, to guide them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yunus got so angry and frustrated with his people that he left them and he was swallowed by a whale. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this story, when Yunus comes out, السلام, he finds all his people guided. Allah had said to him, Ya Yunus, your honor was that I had sent you. Your honor was not that you would achieve the result. All glory belongs to me, all outcome belongs to me. I've shown you that I can do it on my own. You are the one who's supposed to feel honored. When you asked me in the beginning of, 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 this, of this podcast, Sami Mashallah, people are talking about and, and what, the reason why I'm terrified of such statements is because of the story of Yunus. Allah doesn't need me. I'm not the one honoring Allah. I'm not the one honoring Islam by mobilizing. Islam honors me by encouraging me to mobilize. Allah honors me by allowing me to be the tool and vehicle. Once upon a time, I used to sit on my couch watching the TV, telling my wife, do you think one day, one day, I will be able to have a platform where I can reach people and talk? And she would say, inshallah, but you need to keep typing, you need to keep moving. And it was hard to keep moving. Today, alhamdulillah, I'm speaking and you see your reach now in the US or the like. Allah is elevating that power. I don't know where it will end up one day. But the point here being is, it's abundantly clear. Allah rewards an ummah that strives. Allah rewards an ummah that takes a step. Allah, you take one step, you take one step, Allah gives you 10. When we look at, for example, successes, engaging successes, remember Allah determines the success. Allah determines the outcome. The Prophet Muhammad وسلم, did not see Islam in Argentina. He did not see Al-Quds liberated. He did not see the, the battle of Qadisiyah. He did not see the Islam enter Persia or enter Rome. He didn't see it, but he didn't need to Jalal because he'd done what he had to do. Allah used him as a vehicle to inspire Sahaba to go out. Somebody made a very good point. In terms of the Sahaba, when you look at the graves in Medina, most of Sahaba are buried outside because for them what Islam meant, Islam was not to sit in a room and focus solely on spirituality. Islam was a religion of action where we go out, where we tell ourselves because we're travelers in this dunya, I see an injustice, let me go for it. And the Prophet Muhammad this is what I mean. 
look at Islam also from a political lens. We read the hadith, بَلِّغُوا عَنِّي وَلَوْ آيَةً Convey from me even as a verse. We read it as a spiritual verse. Read the Quran, you feel better. But part of the meaning is also, the Prophet ﷺ meant that when you speak it, you advance the cause of Islam. You force a debate. You force a discussion. People ask you who said it. Then they want to know about Islam. Then it enters Rome. Then it enters Berlin. Paul Williams, who you had over here, is now listed as one of the most influential Muslims. He's an English revert. When you look at the way Islam is spreading and entering people's homes, Allah is making it abundantly clear that the outcome belongs to him. When you look at the Prophet Muhammad people are saying we have no power. He says, He who sees something that is wrong, let him change it with his hand. And if he cannot, then with his tongue. And if he cannot, then let him condemn it in his heart. The Prophet has already made allowances for a situation where we don't have the power to do the to achieve the outcome that we want. So the Prophet has qualified it in that if you can't change it with your hand, then condemn it with your tongue and raise awareness. That's an elevated form of resistance as well. But the reason why I mention all this is because when people ask, what does a Muslim polity look like? I look at Muslim Islamic history and I see that the best of creations, the Sahaba, they fought between themselves. I see that, for example, the Abbasids and the Umayyads, they were side by side, one in Andalusia and one in Baghdad. Baghdad became a golden age for Islam at the same time that Cordoba became a golden age of Islam. Because what drove this Ummah, what drove the Muslims was the impetus of Islam. And I think what we're seeing now with regards to Palestine is everybody feeling the despair, but going back to Islam and realizing that Islam is not just about the dua, although it's fundamentally important. It's not just about the Salat, even though we should increase our Salat because the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of the Trench used to increase his Salat in order to pray for victory. But they are realizing that this Ummah should also be about action. Yeah, Jalal, I'm seeing Muslims here in the UK now talk about a Muslim census to identify constituencies where they can punish the parties for their support for Israel and for their support for the genocide that's unfolding. That's action. That's Islamic. That's what the Muslim Ummah should be about. I'm seeing in the US Muslims, who, US Muslims who were terrified after 9-11, I'm seeing them come out and I'm sitting with them in the discussions where they are saying, okay, wh where are the states where we can punish the parties for betraying and supporting the genocide? They are mobilizing. They are becoming a people of action. When you say you have hope, you have hope because you're a man of action and you're seeing other people take action. Islam becomes great when the Muslim believes that Islam inspires them to embark on actions. And to finish on this point, the reason why I say read the Quran as a political book is that the Prophet Muhammad conquered Mecca and Medina, but he didn't see Quds, but that was enough for him. Allah guaranteed the outcome. Ibrahim السلام, when he couldn't have a child, he had, a, he had two children in old age, but the angels promised him, they said, Allah has promised your progeny would be like the stars. He died in a small village near Mecca, never seeing that progeny, never seeing Mecca become such a large city, but that was enough for him because Allah dealt with the outcome. He did what he had to do. But Hud Shu'aib Saleh uh, uh, Nuh they spent hundreds of years with their people, 900 years, calling to their people and never succeeded in establishing that polity that you're talking about. They never succeeded in convincing their people, even though they tried, Nuh used to say that my da'wah only makes them run away. The point is Allah is making absolutely clear that the outcome belongs to him. I don't know what shape or form a Muslim polity will look like. I don't know what it should look like. What I do know is Allah already knows what it looks like. What I do know is that Allah is the best one to trust with the outcome of it. And what I do know is it will never come about if this remains an ummah that doesn't take action. What I hope and my response to your friend earlier who was a cynic is this. Palestine has shown you, has shown you that your actions, however insignificant you feel they are, were significant. 
Everybody who posted on social media has made Blinken buckle, has made Netanyahu buckle, has made Bin Salman mobilize the Mashaykh in the mosques to get them to come up with an Islamically legitimate argument in order to try to tell them you should be quiet, don't talk about Gaza. He's worried, so he's coming after you. We've seen Erdogan go from being neutral to saying we want to defend the Palestinians. The Ummah has power. The reason it feels it doesn't have power is because it never took that first step that required Allah to take 10. And when you meet the people who take the first step, they are extraordinary people. There are people who liberated the Muslim world from colonization. There are people who established those independent states that in their, in their intention, they were hoping those states would join together. That's our responsibility to try to encourage that. But the reason why I mention all of this is to go back to the point. There are some who will say, Sammy, you ducked the question in terms of describing the substance and form of the polity. The reason why I'm ducking it is because that's not the essence of the question. The essence of the question is this. It is Islam that made the Muslims great, not the Muslims that made Islam great. It is Islam as long as we see Islam as something that governs our actions. As long as when we go to work in the morning and we say Alhamdulillah that we have the risk and we try to excel in our jobs so that maybe we get that promotion or maybe we're kicked out of the job but we learn the expertise to establish our own businesses, our own Starbucks, our own McDonald's, our own corporate entities. Maybe one day when if we see Islam as a means of political action, when we see Keir Starmer, we're able to get together in order to punish him in the elections or to punish Biden in the elections. That requires political thought that stems from an Islamic desire to take action in the hope that Allah will reward the action and that Allah will produce an outcome. I always have a positive relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I believe everything in his, in his hands. Allah is always in control of all affairs, but people tend to forget it. I think that when it comes to Palestine, people often say, they message, they say, I feel despair, I feel heartbroken. But this is not the time to feel despair or heartbroken. We are in the middle of a war of narratives. That's our battle at this moment in time. And we are winning that war of narratives. When Biden is changing his support for Israel or suggesting that he is going to limit support for Israel, he's not doing it because he wants to, he's doing it because we're forcing him. And that leads me as a political analyst to plead with this ummah, to plead, keep going. Don't let people tell you you're powerless. Don't let people tell you you're insignificant. Don't let people tell you it doesn't matter. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He who does even an atom of good deeds, Allah sees it. Allah sees an atom and he amplifies it. So when he sees the tweet, he amplifies it. When he sees the Facebook post, he amplifies it. When he sees the Instagram, he amplifies it. This ordinary in ordinary circumstances, people probably wouldn't watch the video. Inshallah, Allah will amplify it, provided our intention is about trying to pursue that. The, the, to finish, to conclude on this point, even though I've become notorious for that sentence, <laughs> to conclude on this point, I think that a Muslim order or a Muslim polity or a Muslim success or a successful Muslim society is defined by a people who believe that their actions are governed by Islam, not in terms of its injunctions, but that they are inspired by Islam. That when they read the ayahs of the Quran, it inspires them to excel in science. One of the reasons Christianity left Europe was because people came to realize that Christianity was not aligning with scientific advancements, that it was not encouraging intellect, that it was hampering that. The reason the Muslims thrived was because they found that the Quran was encouraging it, that the Quran was commending it, that it was even giving them clues as to where they should look in order to advance in terms of science or the like. And I think, I think that the greatest victory that is coming out of here is that the global public shift, the, sh the shift in public opinion is going to have sweeping consequences on how we talk about Palestine and Israel. When a ceasefire eventually comes, I promise you, those journalists will not write that Israel won. They will write that Israel lost. They will write that Israel was unable to defeat 
this, these ragtag group of Palestinians, that Israel lost the moral compass, that the West lost its moral authority, and that would have sweeping ramifications for how new organizations emerge, for the new thinking about how the political era should look, for new thinking of how the global order should look like. I think that this is a turning point for the generations. This is a turning point in terms of our thinking. This is a turning point in terms of how we perceive the ummah. And that's why I think that to conclude, remember that at the end of the day, we are travelers in this dunya. Allah will decide the outcome. Allah will decide. We may not see it in our lifetime. Allah may not have written it, but Allah has guaranteed it. Allah has decided it. The honor for us is whether we decide to be the vehicles or not. And that's why my dua is not necessarily that Allah, please deliver the outcome. My dua is always Allah. I know you've decided it. I know you've decided on your own terms. I know you already have a point. You already have a time when you're going to bring the outcome. But Allah, I plead with you, let me be a vehicle for it. I plead with you, give me the honor to be part of it. I plead with you, let me be associated with it. Because it is you who honors me, not I who honor you. It is Islam that honors me, not me who honors Islam. It is me who needs you, you don't need me. It's we who need you, you don't need us. And you've shown that throughout the Quran. And I think that once you've reconciled that, I think that what you feel inside you is a fire that starts burning. And you set that despair aside. And you start seeing the opportunities that are in front of you. And inshallah, today we have a limited power. Tomorrow you don't know what kind of power we'll have, inshallah. And inshallah, this ummah appreciates what it's achieved, appreciates what it's done, appreciates the power it has, and remembers that our the all glory belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The more we believe that, and the more we take those steps towards Allah, Allah will amplify our voices as he's doing today, alhamdulillah. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 